0: And welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus Van Staden of Witts University in Johannesburg, South Africa. Very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, today we're going to return to the story in South Sudan. It's been a while since we've talked about that. Uh, Unfortunately, the situation doesn't appear to be much better. But it is one of the most interesting stories for you and me, Cobus, because it is really the petri dish for Chinese foreign policy. So much experimentation has been going on over there in the past three or four years. The deployment of combat troops by the Chinese government to South Sudan. It's one of the largest aid operations. It's also one of the few places in the world where the United States and China at least have an opening to collaborate and do have some overlapping shared interests. So in many ways, to me, South Sudan is one of the most interesting spots for Chinese engagement in Africa.
1: Yes, it's also complicated by the fact that it's a, a massive oil source um, and Chinese oil companies are very active there. At the same time, there's also increasingly Chinese arms flowing into that area. So there's a bunch of different Chinese actors all all working there, sometimes together, sometimes against, against each other.
0: Well, to find out more about this, we are thrilled to have on the show for the first time Anthony Lowenstein, who reported from South Sudan from January all the way through to September of last year, and did quite a bit of writing about it, not only just about the Chinese, but about the general situation. Uh, For those of you not familiar with Anthony, he's an independent journalist and a columnist for the Guardian newspaper in Britain. There's a Guardian in Nigeria, so we always want to make sure we're very clear on that and his latest book is disaster capitalism making a killing out of catastrophe. Anthony, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, guys. And we've got you on the line from East Jerusalem, which is a fascinating story on its own, but we'll we'll kind of focus on South Sudan right now. Um let me just kind of kind of set the table here for people Uh, who may not be familiar with the situation in South Sudan, before we get to you to kind of explain kind of what's been going on recently. Uh, Listen, in December 2013, violence kind of really, the big violence, I think, of the modern area broke out in Juba, the capital, uh, between President Salva Kir's faction, who is from the Dinka tribe. Now, correct me if I'm wrong here, Anthony. And those loyal to his former vice president or deputy, uh, Rick Mashar, and he's mostly Correct. from the noir ethnic group. So this is as much Correct. a power kind of struggle between the two as it is an ethnic struggle. Um, it has turned into really one of the world's hell holes. And, I, and you write in your reporting that you know, it is worse than almost anywhere else in Africa in terms of the situation. That puts it in the kind of top five most hellish places on the planet. There are 12 million people who live in South Sudan. A staggering 70% face severe hunger. Um, Now, to help kind of challenge all of that, the United Nations has sent a massive deployment. 12,500 blue helmets are on the ground from countries all over the world. And China is playing a very big role in that peacekeeping operation. So, Anthony, let's start the program today by giving us kind of, you know, paint the picture for what you saw just a few months ago in South Sudan and try and put China in that mix. So
2: South Sudan, for those who don't know, became independent in July 2011. Uh, Long story how that happened, but essentially Sudan had uh, Sudanese forces based in Khartoum had fought for many years with forces in the South Sudanese part of the country. Eventually, for a variety of reasons, not least huge U.S. support post-9-11, the Bush administration under George W. Bush, Viewed South Sudan as one way to go after what he perceived as an enemy in Muslim Sudan because South Sudan is Christian. Huge death toll over the years of decades of civil war. And China's role before independence was not huge, it was there. And as you said a minute ago, the oil reserves really are a key issue here for South Sudan. When Sudan and South Sudan split in 2011, Most of the oil went to South Sudan, and Sudan was pretty unhappy about that, but that's how the line was drawn. China had influence, had oil companies, had sent weapons and other um, armaments to South Sudan soon after independence. As you said, when the war broke out in late 2013, and tragically, this really is about two men and their power grab. I'm not suggesting, having spent time in that, there's not grievances and poverty and dispossession. All that is true, but China's role at the time when the conflict broke out was slightly bewildering. In other words, they their main goal was oil and energy. And at one point, at the high point of South Sudanese independence after independence in 2011. I can't remember the exact figure, but it's somewhere like between 2 to 3% of oil that was going to China was coming from South Sudan, which is not a huge amount, but still a lot, considering how much oil and energy ch- um, China requires and needs. As the war escalated in, from 2013 to this day, and we'll get to the current situation in a minute, China's role, I guess you could say, changed and evolved. Um, I think Beijing, in some ways, has a quite curious relationship with Africa, which I know your program talks extensively about. And I think leaders in China certainly saw South Sudan as an opportunity to both increase their influence in a country where the U.S. used to have influence and without America's support, there would arguably have not been a South Sudan today. And I think its involvement in sending roughly just over a 1,000 peacekeepers who arrived, they come in different stages, but roughly they started coming in late uh, in 2014 and they're now all there um, helping in various ways. The peacekeeping mission, I should say, in South Sudan has been both a disaster and also essential. And we can get to that in a minute if you'd like. But I think China's role has really been almost an experiment in seeing what role, if any, a more, I don't want to say aggressive, but a more assertive global playing role Beijing could have in a country where the rule of law and violence is off the chart.
1: So, um, in recently you wrote a piece for the Australian um, magazine Overland, um, where you said that essentially South Sudan has now become a proxy war with China and Israel um, arming the, the South Sudanese government forces and um, Sudan's um, Omar al-Bashir um, arming the, the rebels. I wonder if you could unpack that a little bit, because at the same time, China is officially also a long-term ally with Sudan, right?
2: Absolutely. This is the typical murkiness that, it, that it envelops South Sudan. Uh, just to point out one key thing, It's virtually impossible and human rights groups and arms um, research organizations have found it almost impossible to actually determine what weapons are going to South Sudan today, where they are, and who exactly is still sending weapons. We understand that um, weapons are certainly coming into South Sudan. That is true. But a lot of the infrastructure that's coming into South Sudan these days is surveillance equipment, surveillance equipment by the government of the day to monitor dissidents, um, the opposition, etc. The proxy war I talked about in that piece, and I also wrote about it a lot in The Guardian last year in 2015, is that South Sudan on the ground has been a war zone now for over two years. Although there's been a recent peace deal, and we can discuss that in a minute, on the ground in much of the country, the nation is still at war. What I mean by that is there are still roughly 200,000 people living in UN peacekeeping camps. China has a small but significant part in assisting the peacekeeping mission there. They haven't done a very good job. I don't mean China per se. I mean the peacekeeping forces themselves. There are regular attacks against UN bases and UN forces, including Chinese forces, either stand still, don't do anything, react far too late, and a number of civilians have been killed in these places. The weapons that have entered South Sudan in the last five years, as you say, have come partly from Israel, partly from China, partly from Sudan, and also partly from other nations within Africa. The US, of course, also has a key role here. The US had provided huge amounts of money, resources, weapons. But once the country started falling apart from late 2013, America took its eye off the ball. In other words, there was huge interest, there was huge passion. John Kerry, the Secretary of State, used the term America midwived South Sudan. America was central to this birth of the nation but when the country fell apart it almost allowed other players including china to enter the arena and that's led i think today in 2016 to an incredibly ugly environment where you have a country with virtually no infrastructure very very poor um, roads is about two percent of the country that has roads half the year the country is uh, inaccessible because of the rainy season we're currently in the dry season now violence on a scale, as I wrote in my piece and I also wrote in The Guardian last year, violence on a scale that, and having spent time in Afghanistan and Pakistan and various other conflict zones around the world in the last decade or so, parts of the Middle East as well, the extremism of the violence there, it's not religious extremism, just to be clear to listeners. Yes, the majority of South Sudanese are Christian, but they're not really um, committing these crimes because they're Christian, like does not it's not like Boko Haram, for example, who see a lot of their behavior as in their view, coming from Islamic scripture. Uh, South Sudanese fighters are not doing this because they're Christian there. It's a brutal civil war that involves mass rape, uh, the burning down of villages where women and children are being burnt alive. And the use of Chinese weapons and surveillance along with Israeli and American weapons and infrastructure has fueled the war to this day. And there's no accountability whatsoever to change that. And that's where we are today in 2016.
0: Well, I just want to make one very minor point of clarification here, which is that when we say the Chinese are selling arms to uh, one side or the other – I think it's important to kind of make a distinction between the Chinese government and Chinese kind of military contractors, which, incidentally, companies like Norinco happen to be state-owned companies, but not necessarily kind of working in conjunction with the political or diplomatic side. And that was a situation in South Sudan we encountered. Kobus, was that about two years ago where the ambassador to Beijing on Al Jazeera said, we will put an arms embargo now, and then like two weeks later they found $38 million in small arms from the RINCO. Yeah, uh, and, but, and yeah f- it was this,
1: this, this test case of how the the Chinese government and Chinese state-owned agencies frequently don't communicate very well, and the government is sometimes blindsided by what the, by what the, the state-owned co- um, companies do.
0: That's right, and so so again, I think it's just important for everybody to understand there are a lot of moving fair parts point. here. So it's a hey, fair point. Yeah, and so let's kind of talk about China's interest in in South Sudan. And I'm going to put a couple different kind of topics out there. Pick whichever ones you want to focus on. So number one, there's oil there. And you said there's a sizable amount of oil. The two largest oil exporting regions from Africa, one is Angola and the other are the Sudans and the combination. And it's interesting because Sudan and South Sudan have to work together in order to get the oil out. South Sudan is where the reserves are, and the refining and the processing of the oil happens in Sudan, and the pipelines go in between the two. And China's kind of built up that entire infrastructure, so it's got a a vested interest in keeping that system going. It's got a diplomatic interest. Um, They've put more diplomatic capital into South Sudan than I think any other African country Zhong Jianhua is the kind of special representative for the Chinese foreign ministry in Africa. He spends probably more time in the South Sudanese issue than any other. Uh, Obviously, there's a military contracting relationship. There's a political relationship. Um, Talk to us a little bit about the Chinese interests. And I always wonder, are the Chinese maybe kind of punching outside of their league here and their weight? Because this is a big, complicated international diplomatic problem that's in the middle of a hot conflict – And they don't have a lot of experience in dealing with these kinds of situations. So how does that kind of gel with their their long-term interest, in your opinion?
2: You're right. A few points on that, and you made some really really valid points there. A couple of ideas. Since the war broke out in late 2013, the oil industry basically has stopped. Yes, there's some oil being produced. Yes, there's some oil being sold. But the oil industry in South Sudan essentially for want of a better term, as, as is no longer functioning for two reasons. One, many of the areas where oil was being produced was um, where the war was being fought. Secondly, much of the infrastructure was destroyed during the war, and ironically, in the last few years, the South Sudanese government tried to hire. Eric Prince, who as listeners may be aware, used to run the company Blackwater, the American military contracting company who no longer owns Blackwater, but now runs a company which I'm sure your show has touched on called Frontier Services, which does infrastructure work and military contracting around Africa. They try to hire Eric Prince to rebuild that infrastructure, which hasn't had much effect, is the long and the short of it. So, China, you could argue, either has a longer-term view or was hoping that the oil industry would not collapse as quickly as it did when the war began. In terms of China's diplomatic abilities to gain influence or otherwise in South Sudan, the truth is that the parties that eventually brought the warring sides to the table in South Sudan, though most of the negotiations happened elsewhere in Ethiopia and other parts of Africa in Nairobi. China's role in that was minimal, at best, at best. That's not to criticize China per se by any means, simply to say the ability, willingness, interest, very hard to know of China to actually seriously engage the warring parties to bring them to some kind of peace agreement was minimal. The African Union had a huge influence, although it took them years to bring anything to fruition, and even now this so-called peace deal is on its last legs. The U.S. said a lot of strong things, President Obama was in Africa, as listeners will know, last year in Nairobi and elsewhere and made some very strong statements about South Sudan, but there wasn't a a great deal of diplomatic follow-up. China has made, the Chinese foreign ministry has made comments about, yes, it'd be nice if the warring parties stop fighting, but they either have little political leverage in South Sudan which I think probably is the case these days. Uh, they would have had more two, three years ago than they do today. But I think they are waiting and hoping that when the country stabilises, the oil industry stabilises, the oil industry can then build itself up and China has both various of its companies waiting to exploit the oil but also has an ability diplomatically to, I would say, challenge the possibility, not in a, not in a violent, aggressive way, but ch- challenge the Arrogant presumption that Washington had since independence in 2011 that South Sudan was American was an American client state. America made that very, very clear. And today, in 2016, you really couldn't say that it's not a Chinese client state either. But it's certainly a state that has various interests both in Africa and beyond.
0: Kobus, let me throw a uh, uh, let me float a theory by you that I think I put to Dan Large, and who else is the other expert? Luke, we forgot, we've interviewed him a couple yeah, times. Yeah, Luke Pety. Luke Pety as well. Those are two excellent experts, by the way, on China in uh, in South Sudan, Dan Large and Luke Patey, who have both written books on the subject. I put my theory to them. They, I think, if I recall, rejected it, but I'm going to kind of dig this one up again and put it to you and see if it's relevant. Um, you have talked about, over the in the past, that Africa is a place of very low consequence for the Chinese to try things that they can't do in other parts of the world. And I really think that there's something there because the Chinese can deploy their first combat troops to a UN peacekeeping mission that can get real on-the-ground training and exposure into conflict situations. I mean, they couldn't do that anywhere here in Southeast Asia. They couldn't do that, obviously, in the Americas. I mean, go around the world – and where else can the Chinese military get that type of training and exposure? So I think there's some some interest there for them to be engaged in the peacekeeping mission. And then the other part is I think it allows their diplomats to try and do large-scale mediation, which they don't have experience in doing in places like the Middle East. And that's a key diplomatic advantage that the United States has had for a long time. And there are hints that Xi Jinping does see himself playing a bigger role in global diplomacy. Again, I think Luke Pady and Dan Large, if I recall, kind of shot those two theories down. What's your take on it? Um, I've heard that theory...
1: Role, you know, raised in in relation to how China rolls out state-owned media in, um, in in different parts of the world, with with more senior people being sent to to very prominent markets like the U.S. and and less senior people being sent to um, to less prominent markets like Africa, where they can also then be more innovative and try things out. And if they if they do well there, then they move on up the ladder. Um, I am a little unsure about that in the in the military sense. I'm not a military expert by any means. Um, what, what makes me unsure is that just the you know the consequences are so grave, um, and that um, that you know kind of obviously with with the ubiquity of media, even in a relatively obscure conflict like South Sudan. If there is any kind of major misstep or any kind of major atrocity done done by Chinese peacekeepers the way that they've been we've seen with other u n peacekeepers there's no way of keeping a lid on that there's no there's no fact that you know the the fact that it's happening in Africa doesn't make it any less egregious than it would in any other place um so i also what's my main worry about that theory is actually is that we just have no idea really what the the what those peacekeepers are really doing, you know, kind of what what the, the or, um, you know, kind of what their day to day jobs are, like you know, kind of how they're fitting in with the other peacekeepers and also what the um, what the role will be of the the new military facility that China is building in Djibouti. Um, actually, yeah, yeah like a I new I, uh, Yeah, that's interesting. To, to yeah. Really like, I, I wonder so. if you have any ins- insights on any of those of those issues.
2: Um, I mean, certainly just a few brief points just before I get to Djibouti, that the role of China in South Sudan is not on the front line, so to speak. I just want listeners to be aware of that, that they are basically working alongside, I think it's probably at least two dozen other countries, peacekeepers who are operating mostly within UN uh, bases where there are now as I said, about 200,000 South Sudanese who are demanding and wanting protection from violence.
0: But they do have combat engagement authority, which is different than anywhere else yes, in Africa. And that's indeed. that's what's distinct about the Chinese uh, deployment in South Sudan.
2: You're absolutely right. And as far as I know, and I'm happy to be corrected on this, that the only activity that um, China would have seen, you talked before about kind of getting so-called combat experience, they're not going to get much of it in South Sudan, to be honest, because unless they are, which they're not, literally fighting on one side or the other, namely the government side or the opposition side, on the front line, the combat experience, so to speak, is minimal. I should also say, as a journalist, trying to get access to the Chinese bases in South Sudan was close to impossible. There was a BBC report a few months ago which did get access after God knows how long they tried. And what they basically said was, for listeners who could Google this and find it themselves, is that the Chinese aren't doing a lot there. In other words, not suggesting they're not doing anything productive, but they're not fighting. They're trying to ingratiate themselves with locals. They're trying to fit in. They're trying to be part of a more international coalition. The problem has become not just for the Chinese, but all peacekeepers there, but China is undeniably as part of this problem as along with everybody else, that when there have been regular attacks against these UN bases and civilians are being killed and targeted, regularly the UN peacekeepers, of which China is a part, doesn't do anything. They stand still. They don't activate themselves. They don't protect civilians. Now, I'm not suggesting this is just the Chinese. Of course it's not, but that's a problem. <laughs> And the lack of accountability about that makes this worse. The UN, when I was there, um, was notoriously lacking in transparency. It's one of the biggest UN missions in the world. And I think that the role of somewhere like Djibouti uh, doesn't have, on one level, direct connection to uh, to South Sudan, except for the fact, of course, that Djibouti is the only acknowledged U.S drone base in africa although there are at least five or six others and you can't help but think for a tiny country like Djibouti which is a authoritarian state that china yes wants to use it as a naval base but also wants to you know wants to show america that it simply can't in some ways rule africa and that's
1: i think a really interesting question moving forward it seems to me that you know the, the whatever what the real experience China is probably getting from this is the experience of multilateral peacekeeping, um, which it has obviously done in lots of other places. But you know this is this is in a particularly kind of high stress environment, mm-hmm. um, and in that sense you know kind of it 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 opens up a different role for china than the than the one i think your question implied eric which is you know with like a, china as as a kind of some kind of military kind of force in africa and i think you know kind of this aligns closer to the the, the line that the chinese government has put in point put out that they are interested in working in in other kind of multilateral institutions in different with different aspects in africa you know kind of this seems to be like pushing that kind of more official line
0: yeah and it's inter- um, it's interesting to- to hear Anthony's comments because, do you remember, uh, it was about a year ago and there was this incredible headline about, you know, and it was just a piece of dookie headline, uh, about Chinese forces, you know, invading South Sudan. And, and then to hear, like, well, they're really not doing very much. And again, I think this this really highlights the the the, the huge gap between the perception of the Chinese in Africa as kind of a colonial invading force and the reality, yeah. which is, well... They're not really doing very much and they're inside the wire. They're not actually engaging. Not to say that, again, that they're doing what's in the kind of rules of engagement for the UN mission there. But they're certainly not kind of living up to everybody's worst kind of, you know, nightmares. Let me let's close out our, our conversation with just some kind of, you know, big picture kind of thoughts on this. You know, listening to you describe the situation in South Sudan really reminds me in many ways of the situation in the eastern DRC. And in, yeah. the, in the DR Congo, you have the largest UN peacekeeping operation in the world. The UN peacekeepers yeah. are hardly effective. They're not very you know, well-equipped, not very well-funded in, in the sense of for up to the task that they have to face. Um, the level of desperation that you describe in South Sudan is comparable in the Eastern Congo. And yes. I think the last part is there's a sense of hopelessness. You, in your piece uh, for Overland, kind of, you know, tried to live a, leave us with some optimism. Let me just kind of quote, you, you know, what you wrote. You said, without concerted international pressure to cease the violence and to establish accountable trials and a South African-style truth and reconciliation commission, South Sudan is destined to remain mired in conflict. It's determined people deserve far better from the major global powers that are just a few years ago, that, that are that just a few years ago, Promised them the world. Um, I kind of take the point of view that, you know, that is wishful thinking to have that kind of South African style truth and reconciliation commission. I think you're probably along those same lines and the rest of the world. Let's just be honest here. doesn't care. I mean, we don't care about the Eastern Congo and we don't care about South Sudan, even if there is oil. Well, there's lots of oil in the market today. It's not that important. Mm -hmm. And I think Mm -hmm. that these places are going to just keep being flushed down the sewer. No one's going to care. Um, the Chinese at the end of they don't care any more than the Americans. They're there for lots of different, you know, reasons. A few of them have to do with actually helping the people. Um, that's my kind of depressing take on it. Kind of wh- When you look at the situation in South Sudan, as someone who spent months there and reporting on it, what's your kind of honest take about, you know, the future?
2: It's hard to be pessimistic. Um, sorry, let's, let's say that again. It's hard to be optimistic. Important difference. Very hard to be optimistic. <laughs> and... The reason I say that is for a few quick reasons I'll explain. The education rate in South Sudan for girls is about 15%. For boys, I think it's about 20%. Now, that figure almost on its own makes any kind of future for a country, frankly, close to impossible. That's one fact amongst many others. As you say, the global powers are disinterested. Yes, oil is important. Yes, strategic positioning is important. Yes, the US saw... South Sudan, certainly in 2011 and the years post 9-11, as some kind of reliable ally in the so-called war on terror. Chinese China's real agenda there, I think, is probably far more pragmatic. But as you say, I think getting good experience in peacekeeping is undeniably, I think, one of them. I think also the real issue is, and I found this a lot going around South Sudan, and this was not unique to South Sudan, having traveled a lot around Africa um, in reporting last year, There was a lot of suspicion about China's motives and I think that came from a place mostly of ignorance. It wasn't based on South Sudanese person had met a Chinese person and thought this person was awful. It was nothing like that. Most of them never met a Chinese person at all. The image in much of the South Sudanese press was not very positive towards China and I think there was still a lot of resentment, anger and frustration that the U.S., which had given so much for South Sudanese independence, had basically walked away. I mean, they hadn't entirely done that, but they had really packed up and moved on elsewhere because the Middle East is falling apart and Obama's priorities were not South Sudan, frankly. So, Eric, I fear that you might be right, but and I think the chance of any kind of serious accountability is unlikely. The problem is that now that you have the president and the former, his former vice president back in Juba together, apparently trying to lead the country forward. There's been no traction in accountability. The governance doesn't really exist. International aid is very minimal. And as I talk about in my piece, and this I think was a key theme both in South Sudan and elsewhere, these countries like South Sudan are not independent. They're independent on paper, but essentially they are propped up by UN peacekeepers and NGOs. And a term I talked about, the NGOization of failed states, to me is really problematic. If the UN and NGOs pulled out tomorrow, South Sudan would undeniably be in worse shape. This to me is undeniable. But at the same time, do we feel comfortable as a community, as individuals, as citizens of the world, that countries like South Sudan basically can't operate on their own without massive UN? Chinese, American, and other support, that to me is really worrying. And if that's a model moving forward for new independent states, and I think it needs to be seriously examined.
0: Kobus, let's kind of, you know, close out our conversation with you and kind of I'll put the same question to you in terms of where you think it's going. And, and also kind of, Where do you think this is going for the Chinese? You know, this has really presented a challenge to their non-interference doctrine, which is a benchmark and a bedrock of their foreign policy of not interfering in the internal affairs of other countries. And I contend that this is really a, a test for them because they are engaged in the internal affairs of another country. Where do you see all of the diplomatic, political and military direction going for the Chinese in South Sudan?
1: um well you know i um, i think i pick up from um, from what anthony mentioned you know it's this, this uh, process of NGOization of of the country where where it is essentially propped up by these foreign agencies foreign multilateral agencies frequently like the un i mean you know kind of as we said china is has expressed the the, the willingness to be more involved in that you know kind of, so china could well could well follow the trajectory of japan which was, became, you know, kind of super rich and Feared, you know, by by the rest of the world in in the seventies and eighties as a, a kind of massive producer of everything on Earth. Um, then moving, kind of trying to kind of re- rehabilitate its image by by becoming a, a big A donor um, and moving, you know, moving increasingly in that direction. I mean, the the multilateral cooperation to to stem um, piracy in, in off the coast of Somalia is already an example of that. Um, so. Whether they, they'd actually actually be able to get anything done in South Sudan is a very different question. Um, you know, kind of the other, the other obviously complicating question is that they have billions of dollars of, of oil infrastructure sitting there. Um, but then, you know, kind of the Chinese have in the past, in the case of Libya, like written off. Massive investments and and you know kind of so you know it, it, it wouldn't be unprecedented for them to kind of cut their losses if if they if it became that bad yeah the you know what what I think we would need to look out for is to which extent China is essentially going to become just a perpetuator of this kind of um, continuous like permanent crisis you know propping up mm-hmm. crisis kind of situation that that yeah. so that
0: Anthony has I mean uh, you know Anthony posed the question of you know do we care and you know and I'll kind of put something out there just to leave people to think about, the northern third of Africa includes Mali, includes Libya, it includes an unstable or increasingly unstable Tunisia, it includes obviously Sudan and South Sudan, Uh, even Egypt itself has serious problems and serious challenges being faced by ISIS, Um, and so we may not care about South Sudan today and what happens to it. But you can see what's happening in that northern third throughout the Sahel and the, and, and, and the Arabic north, that this is becoming one of the most unstable parts of the world. So you might find that the rest of the world will take issue with this uh, as soon as, you know, terrorism or instability or ungoverned states or kind of failed states start to emerge and then really do start to challenge Uh, other countries around the world. So I really recommend that everybody kind of start paying attention to what's happening in this region, because if you don't, as we did in the past, we ignored Afghanistan, we ignored the, uh, you know, situations that were going on in other parts of the world, and it came back to bite us. Um, so engagement, I think, is the way to go. But this is a story that will not you know, end anytime soon. But in order to deepen your knowledge and deepen your understanding of it, I highly recommend you check out some of Antony's writing. You can find his piece at overland.org.au. Uh, just do a search for his name, A-N-T-O-N-Y. Uh, Lowenstein, and he'll be there. And then, uh, Anthony, one of the things we like to do at the end of every show is kind of introduce you to our audience and so that they can follow you on social media. Are you anywhere on the interweb and the, the internet, the Facebook, and all those other cool places?
2: I am indeed, I am on Twitter, my name is at Ant Lowenstein. I'm on Instagram, at Ant Lowenstein. I'm on Facebook, people can obviously find my name, Google my name, I guess obviously they'll be able to find my name when you post the interview. Um, I write about a variety of issues, as I said, mostly political, I'm currently actually uh, working on a documentary called Disaster Capitalism and we're trying to raise final funding online to finish it, to do a rough cut. Uh, issues that are really relevant, in fact, to this question. The film doesn't talk about South Sudan, but it does talk about um, how the aid industry often distorts places like Afghanistan, Haiti, and Papua New Guinea. And I'm based in Israel, Palestine. So as any listener will know, there's a thousand stories. And I think often the media doesn't cover them too well. So I'm trying to do something a bit different here. And I've spent time here before over the years. So... I'm online, easily found. Excellent. Yes. Please well, find me.
0: Thank you so much <laughs> for your excellent reporting. We hope to have you back on the show again very soon. Hey, Kobus, thank in the you. meantime, we'd like to hear from you as to where people can find you on Facebook, Twitter, and all those wonderful places.
1: You'll um, find me on our Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash China Africa Project, and there we have this 24 hour constant feed of China Africa news items. Um, I'm also on Twitter at That's S T A D N E S Q U
0: E. And, Cobus, I want to uh, give a little shout out. We have a whole bunch of new friends to the China Africa Project. Everybody over at Pulse Ghana, Pulse Nigeria, Yes Africa, The Huffington Post, China File. These are all the places where you can find our podcast. Uh, our new Q&A series. So, uh, you know, all those questions that you've been afraid to ask or too embarrassed to ask, you know, the politically incorrect questions, uh, just send us, send them to us. And we've been answering them and we're publishing them across Africa on the Huffington Post Q&A, uh, it's called. And it really is the most politically incorrect. Uh, Kobus, we've had questions of like, why are the Chinese so racist? Uh, we had a question of why don't uh, more... Uh, from a Chinese businessman, he asked uh, he asked you the other day about you know why don't African and his workers want to work overtime and go to church instead? And these are all the kind of basic kind of questions that everybody wants to know. And we'll give you our best take on it. And if we can't answer it, we'll point you in the right direction. Uh, Just send us your questions to questions at ChinaAfricaProject.com. And again, your question uh, will be published uh, in different countries around Africa and the U.S. We do change the names or withhold the names so you don't have to worry about your privacy being uh, compromised in any way. So no question is too silly. Uh, But we'd love to have your questions. So we'll be back again very soon with another edition of the podcast and hopefully including some of your questions coming up very soon. Thank you so much for listening.